if you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been in this series called In the Crowd, and there's been, there have been response moments every week, and, and, uh, and as I was getting back into the office on Tuesday, I, just, I really felt the, the Holy Spirit uh, just, just leading me into this, staying in the series, but, but not doing the response moments tonight, and spend some time encouraging and teaching people who maybe they've been here for the last few weeks and they're wondering why other people are having encounters with Christ and they're not. I think sometimes we can forget that in these, in, in these weeks, there have been powerful moments where you can visibly see that Christ is I so appreciated Anna's word tonight, right? So good. Not just the idea of who God is, but a real living presence. I'm going to be preaching a little bit on that tonight. And, uh, and so I appreciate the Holy Spirit just whispering to her and confirming this direction that we're going to go in. But in those moments, sometimes when you're looking around and you're seeing people and, and Christ is ministering to them, there, there's also sometimes people in the room that are looking around, they're asking the question, why? Why can't that be me? And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. I want to teach into, into that question. And so uh, just to kind of get our, our brains moving in the right direction, we'd like a little participation here at City Life. How, how many parents do I have in here? How many people are parents? Got parents in the house? How, how many of you as a parent have ever said this phrase? How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> oh, you've said that. It's just not us, right? How, how about I show hands? How many times do I have to tell you? How, all right, let's do this. Put your hand back down. How many people said it today? Yeah, it's so great. Yeah, I know. And, and those of you who didn't, you're probably going to say it later on tonight. So, so what are the situations in your home, in your home, protect the dignity of your child, right? So maybe you can't share, but if you can share, what, what, are, what are some situations and circumstances in your home where, where you find yourself saying, how many times do I have to tell you, you fill in the blank? Somebody? Garland. Put the Play-Doh back where it goes. There you go, Steve. Close the refrigerator door. Close the refrigerator door. The the standing in the survey, right? Just surveying, surveying, surveying. Turn the light off. off. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Vanessa says, we're children of the light. I said, not that kind of light because that costs money, right? The light you're kind of talking about, that's free because of Jesus. Flush the toilet. Come on. Praise, right? There's just standards, right? Carol, did you have your hand? That was it. That was yours. Splashing water out of the bathtub. Somebody else? We'll go to the middle, middle section. Janine. Clean up your room. How many times do I have to tell you? Marvin. Be sweet to your mama. See, husbands, pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. Yes. Take a bath. Take a bath. Yes. Somebody else? Anybody else? How many times? I know. Do you guys have any confessing you want to do? How many times you've heard it? No? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So, so, so this is my question to us tonight. How often are we those children to God? Right? How often in our life... Do we create that sentiment and that feeling in the heart of our Father, where, where he's said something to us over and over and over and over again? If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 6. Love this story. This is a story of Jesus saying to his hometown, even his relatives, how many times do I have to tell you? 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Since the next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? We're going to talk about that tonight. And listen to what it says. Now, you find encounters like that with people with Christ all the time where they're, they're amazed, right? But, but then there's faith. But listen to them. They're amazed, but then verse 3, it says they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters, they live right here among us, and they were deep, listen to what it says, they were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Then Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. It's hard to break free from the expectations that people have of us. Verse 5, and be, listen to what it says, and because of their unbelief, he could, you, the, this might be the only time that you find in Scripture where the phrase, he couldn't, is referred to Christ. He couldn't, right? He was limited. He's limitless, but he was limited by their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, he couldn't. He could not. He wanted to, but he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on just a few sick people and heal them. Verse 6, and he was amazed at their belief. This, this word amazed, it means to, 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 to be confused by what you see. And I think the right sentiment there is that the feeling that Jesus had in his heart was how many times do I have to tell you that God knows and that he cares and that he's able? How, how, what else are you going to have to see me do to trust and believe that there's power that I can bring to every situation and every circumstance in your life? It's powerful that their unbelief stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. It could be that if you've been here the last few weeks, or it could be you've been in church your whole life, and you've been in many situations where you've looked around and you've wondered and you've asked the question, when is God going to encounter, when am I going to encounter God the way I see other people are in, encountering him? And it might be, it just might be that some of the things that we talk about tonight are going to help you see that it's something of unbelief in your heart that's keeping God from doing the work that he wants to do in your life. Somebody say the familiar crowd. A familiar crowd can, can create an atmosphere of unbelief in our hearts. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, it says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. And then a leader of a local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, I Little daughter is dying. He said, please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so that she can live. Now I'm going to jump down to 35 and all the text that, that's in between is the story that we dug into, uh, which is the, the series slide, if, if you've noticed that, of uh, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. Now we've dug into that, so we're going to skip over that and we're going to jump down to verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking to her, talking about this woman that he had just healed, messengers arrived from the home, home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. Listen to what it said. They told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and asked, Why, what, what's all this commotion and weeping about? And they, they, he said, the child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Now the crowd laughed at him because they knew what death looked like in the first century. He made them all leave. Get out. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the little girl was lying and holding her hand. He said to her in Aramaic, a phrase that means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and started walking around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. It's fascinating to me that in verse 35 and verse 37 and in verse 40, we find that this crowd of people was an unbelieving crowd. Right? They're, they got to a situation, they had enough faith to believe that Christ could do something when she was sick, but at the point that she was dead, right, what did the messenger say? There's no use. Verse 37, it says Jesus stopped the crowd. Jesus recognized, right? It, there, there's a reason why this story is positioned in the text where it is. Because in Nazareth, it says that unbelief kept Jesus from doing what he wanted to do. And Jesus knows that he's about ready to go into this room and he's about ready to raise this little girl from the dead, right? He did not want unbelief in that room with them. So they said, you can't come in here. The only people that were allowed to go in were the people who had the faith to believe that he could do something miraculous. Verse 40 says, the crowd laughed at him. They laughed. They're crying, they're weeping, they're wailing. And even in their grief, they had the presence of mind to laugh at the one who was able. Why? Because of their unbelief. If you struggle with unbelief in your life, it might be because you have a crowd of people that you're investing your life with that is an unbelieving crowd of people. That the, their voice, their perspective, their ideas, their, their, their orientation to life is one of being unbelieving. It could, it could be that they're not devoted followers of Christ. It could be they're actually devoted followers of Christ, but they're still unbelieving. It's interesting that some of the disciples didn't even make the cut. He's like... Just you three can come in for this one, right? I'm not saying get rid of all your friends. I'm not saying walk out on your family. That's not what I'm saying tonight. What I'm saying is if, if you survey the crowd that you spend the most time with, and you say, this is an unbelieving crowd, right? What I'm saying to you is keep that, keep that crowd, because you're supposed to reach them. But you've got to add people to your crowd that begins to change the equation and the balance shifts so that your crowd is one of belief and faith. Right? You, you've, you've, got, you've got to add people. You've got to add circles of friends. You've got to add community so that when it's all set up, like when you're balancing your checkbook at the end of the month, that you're not in the red all the time when it comes to the faith factor of the crowd that you walk with. If the crowd that's all too familiar with you is an unbelieving crowd, I'm telling you, it becomes a barrier for the work that Christ wants to do in your life, and you can do something about it. Somebody say a familiar Christ. There's a familiar crowd, but there can be a familiar Christ. It's created a dynamic of unbelief in your heart. 
could be that you're here tonight and you've never experienced the power of God in your life because it, maybe you have no history at all with Jesus, just the idea of Jesus, who Jesus is, and even us saying his name, you're trying to figure out who's this guy they keep talking about. It could be you have no history with him, or it could be that you've got a lifetime of history with him, but your history with him is so narrow, it does not include his power. It does not include his person, like what Anna was talking about. It could be that your whole history with Jesus has only been about the idea of who Christ is and a doctrine and a belief, but it's never been a personal presence. It's interesting to wonder if Jesus' powers were manifested as a child. I don't, we don't know for The Bible doesn't speak to it specifically. But there are some reactions of people that we can look at that I think gives us some indication as to whether or not it happened. I, I don't think it did. And the reason I say that is because when you get to Mark 3 and you read in 20 and 21, it says, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again and soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. And when his family heard what was happening, right, this is his immediate family, they tried to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. I think that's a great indication of whether or not that he moved in supernatural ways when he was a child. Because if that had been commonplace, they would have said, well, of course this is who Jesus is and what he's going to do. But even his own family, they were not familiar with everything that Jesus would one day be capable of. They had a history with him, but it was too narrow. Jump down to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, right? They wanted to see him, but Jesus was ministering, and so they waited. They didn't, they didn't just leave, which also gives us an indication for how troubled they thought Jesus was. They're like, we're going to wait. He's our son. He needs help. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. Listen to what it says. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. And there was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, your mother and brothers are still outside asking for you. They were deeply concerned for what they were seeing. It could be that you're here tonight in the history that you have with Christ is keeping you from believing what he can do in your tomorrow. It's interesting, the opening text that we read and when he was in his hometown, the implication is that the whole entire town collectively together was incapable of believing. It's interesting, isn't it? As you read it, it said it was just a few people. Meaning that, which I think is what God is trying to help us to see, you, you begin to buy into the idea of the people around you, which is this idea of a familiar crowd. But then you begin to attach that unbelief to who Christ is, and you begin to create an idea of who Jesus is, and you begin to create an idea of who he shouldn't be that sometimes is false. Matthew 13, 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country. This is Matthew's account of what we just read in Mark 6 a few minutes ago. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown, and, and, and when he taught there in the, synagogue, in the synagogue, everyone was amazed. So where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get these powers to do miracles? They, they scoffed. 
He's just the carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas, and all his sisters live right among us. Where did he learn all these things? They were deeply offended and refused to believe him, and Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except his hometown and among his family, and so he only did a few miracles there because of his unbelief. We see it again right here. Matthew, bringing the same story, bringing the same account, because I think... The Holy Spirit knew that what was happening here 2,000 years ago is going to keep happening in each successive generation. That you form an opinion and an idea of who Christ is, and if that idea of who Christ is is incomplete, then you're not going to be able to receive from him everything that he wants to do for you. I have two words for you tonight. Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) Cue the music. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> David's like, dear God, no, rushing the stage. Let, let me read you this. Let me, let, me, let me read you this description. Bohemian Rhapsody is a foot-stomping celebration of Queen, their music, and their extraordinary lead singer, Freddie Mercury. Freddie defied stereotypes and shattered convention to become one of the most beloved entertainers on the planet. This film traces the meteoric rise of the band through their iconic songs and revolutionary sound. They reached unparalleled success. I share that with you because every artist, every artist, whatever your artistry is, you don't want to just entertain people. You want to move people. You want to move people. If you know an artist, if you are an artist, you know what I'm talking about. You don't just want to be an object of entertainment. You want to move people deeply. Now, that's an important concept Because I believe that one of the reasons why so many young people that grow up in the church end up walking away from their faith is because they too want to be moved deeply by faith. Something inside of them wants life. And for too many of them, the only Christianity that's presented to them is a Christianity that is cerebral, that is academic, and is doctrinal. Now, this is an important part of Christianity. I'm not minimizing what they are. What I'm saying is you got to add something to that. you got to add to it. I get it. When Jesus talked about how we love God, mind was in the list. But it was a list. It was a list. And mind was just part of it. I know for me, when I look back on my journey and my teenage and young adult years and why, why I, 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 I ran down the road of the parable of the prodigal son is for that very reason. I wanted to experience life to the full. And the only Christianity that I was familiar with was a, a Christianity of doctrines and morals. And again, I'm not saying that's not important. We teach doctrines here. We teach morals here. But there's got to be some life at some point. There's got to be passion at some point. The greatest adventure that you're ever going to experience in this life is a life of full devotion to Christ, pursuing the purposes that he created you to live for. You've got to cast that vision in your young people. We've got to cast that vision in the next generation. And I'm telling you, if you begin to cast that vision in the next generation, they begin to experience the life of God, whatever substitute the world has to offer, they're not going to be interested in it because they've already experienced the best that there is. For some of you, Jesus has only ever been presented to you as someone to contemplate intellectually a belief, something cerebral. Yes, Jesus is all those things, but so much more. There must be something visceral 
a deep emotional experience. Never stop being Nicodemus, but you got to spend some time as Mary with the alabaster jar. Luke 7, 36 to 38, it says one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman, many believe this would have been Mary Magdalene, from the city heard he was eating there, she, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume. In the original text, it says it's a nard. Nard comes from a, what's called a nard plant that grows at the foothills of the Himalayas. And from the spike of that plant, there's, there's this, this, this substance that's drawn out that's like a perfume. It's so expensive, right? And, and you can imagine how far away that was from the, from the Middle East. There was no Amazon Prime 2,000 years ago, right? It took time to get there. This box, most Christian historians believe it was valued at as an entire year's wage. It's a lot of money. Then she knelt down behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them off with her head. This is a visceral moment for this woman. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. There's got to be a place that you're willing to let your heart get to. Where you're willing to be moved by Christ in a deep way. Sometimes in ways that your mind can't even understand fully. Sometimes you've got to let your heart get out in front of your mind. You can't live your whole life that way. But you've you got to spend some moments that way. It could be that you don't experience the power of God in your life because the Christ that you're familiar with is just something to believe in and not a person to embrace, fall in love with, follow, surrender all of who you are to and ask him to reveal himself to you in such a way that's gonna cause you to fall on your knees and ugly cry every now and again. You might say, well, Fred, that's a, that's a great message for the ladies, but what about for us men? I would say if you're a real man, then you lead the way. Then you lead the way. Somebody say a familiar church. Oh yeah. You can have a familiar crowd, you can have a familiar Christ, but you can have a familiar church. For some of you, and maybe over the last several weeks, even being here and seeing people respond and stand and being prayed for and see visibly how they're affected by Christ, that your struggle has been with unbelief because you've never been a part of a church like this before. Because you've never been in an environment, in a, in a, in a setting where, where, where you see things done like we're doing them here. We're not the only church doing it this way, but it might be the first time that you've ever seen it. It could be that you've left here and you've thought to yourself, I'm not, I'm not sure they're doing it right, right? Because it's not the paradigm that you're used to. People in Jesus' day, they had the same struggle. See, when you read, one of the reasons why I wanted you to hear it in, in Mark 6 and also in Matthew 13 is because one of the recurring themes in there is them questioning where he got this authority and where he got this power. Because in Jesus' day, that mattered. 
You were not free in Jesus' day to function as a rabbi, a spiritual leader, and a spiritual teacher unless you had been ordained and commissioned by another rabbi whose authority could be traced on down a rabbinical line. And there were all kinds of schools of rabbinical thought. It was called their yoke, their interpretation of the Mosaic Law, which is another sermon for another time where that's why Jesus talks about his yoke being easy and his burden is light. We think about the oxen, but it's not about the oxen. It's about the interpretation they have and how they help you understand life in relationship with God. In Jesus' day, there was a process Every boy at the age of six was sent away to rabbinical school for training. Age six, they all went. And they were there until the age of 10. Every single one. And by the age 10, they would memorize Genesis to Deuteronomy. Yeah. How you doing on that one? Right? (laughs) Now, not, not everybody made it. Not everybody could do it. And, and if they couldn't pass the grade, they didn't go, get to go to the next level, they, were, they would be sent back home to learn the trade of their father. But if they passed the first phase, they were invited to go to the second phase. At age 10, only those who showed some promise and in that phase, they memorized the entire rest of the Old Testament chapter and verse. Yeah. It's going to be part of our preschool curriculum. (laughs) You ever stop to think about Jesus and every one of his disciples? They were doing the job that their family was doing which meant that at some point somebody looked at them and said, you don't have what it takes. Even Jesus himself. Don't you want to know at which part of the process did he flunk out of, right? Like at which part did he just, did he not do it on purpose even though he knew he could? Can you imagine that conversation with God late at night? God, I wrote these books. I mean, come on. I got to fail this test on purpose? You got to fail the test. I don't want to fail, right? How many times do you think Jesus sat in there at six, knew all the answers, knew the questions that they didn't even know to ask, just pretending like he didn't know, right? They get through the second phase, but even if you memorized all 39 books, see, some, some people might have the knowledge of it, but they didn't have, they didn't have what it would take to be the successor of the rabbi, to be the one who could then go out into the community and to begin to then teach others. And for these, they had to be willing to abandon everything and immerse themselves for the rest of their lives into rabbinical training. And what a rabbi would say to the student who was going to be invited into this final phase of a lifelong journey to be one of their disciples, they would say, come and follow me. You don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus was walking around, 
He would look at somebody and say, come and follow me, because those words were the words that every person wanted to hear. For someone to look at them and say, you've got what it takes to serve God in this world. And every person that was invited by Christ to go into that journey, at some point, somebody had looked at them and said, you'll never be able to do it. So all those times that you read in Scripture where they're saying to Jesus, who gave him this authority? Who, who, where, did he, where did he learn all of this, right? They refer to him as a carpenter. That, that's an accusation. It's not just filling in, they're just not giving us some commentary. Oh, and oh, by the way, this is what Jesus did. They're saying, you flunked out. Don't call yourself a rabbi. You don't have the authority what they were saying to him is, hey, you're not doing this right. We, we have a process, Jesus. We've got this thing figured out. And in that city and in that place and in his hometown, that unbelief, it kept a perfect God who's perfect in every way, who, who has no limits, even then, he couldn't because of their unbelief. And one of the reasons, well, one of the reasons why they were unbelieving is because they were familiar with a religious system and Jesus was operating outside the boundaries. It might be that you've been here for several weeks now and you're looking around and seeing people, even maybe tonight, maybe you're just, you're visiting for the baptisms and you've been looking around and you've been thinking to yourself, I'm not even sure that you should call this a church. It looks like one. They got pews, they got chandeliers, stained glass windows, but whatever you're doing in here, let's call it something else, Fred, all right? Let's be honest. Because you've got a church that you're familiar with. And it could be that familiarity is the very thing that's keeping you from receiving from God the, the work that he wants to do in your life. If, if you fall into any of these, you've got a familiar crowd, you've got a familiar Christ, you've got a, you've got a familiar church. It's, and what I would say to you is be patient with yourself because God's going to be patient with you. All it takes, this is it, is just the desire to change. All it takes is just a simple conversation that maybe on your way home tonight, maybe in the last worship song that we're going to sing in just a minute, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's as you're, you're the first one up tomorrow morning and you don't have to go to church, praise the Lord, because you came on Saturday. Hey, Saturday revelation. Don't call me because I'm not up yet. Is that you would say, God, I... I don't want to be so familiar with my past. I want to be familiar with who you are. And I want to be familiar with the life that you've called me to live. And you got to, be, you got to say this. And God, I'm willing to make whatever changes it's going to take to get there. The worship team's going to come back up. This verse here in Mark 5, verse 40. Listen to what it says. It says, the crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave, and he took the little girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Now I want to talk to everybody else. I want to talk to everybody else. Not the people that are struggling with unbelief, 
Not the people that are overly familiar with a certain kind of church and a certain kind of crowd and a, a, a certain kind of Christ. I want to talk to everybody else. Those of you that you would say, Fred, I, I believe, I have faith. And, and, and what I want to say to you is, you've got to be present. You, you've got to find a pace in life that enables you, whether this is your church home or whether it's somewhere else. Because one of the things that makes the difference in the room are the people that went into the room with him. Right? Jesus said, I want the mom, I want the dad, I want Peter and James and John. And so what I'm asking you is that every seven days, are you stepping into an environment where you're becoming the faith that tips the balance for the person that needs a touch from Christ? Father, I pray for every person that's here. The one that's too familiar with too many things that's causing them to struggle with belief, I pray that you would break in on their world. We know, God, that you're not going to change their history, but we know that there is a new history that's waiting to be written in their tomorrows, and I pray that today would be a turning point for them. And I pray for every person here that considers themselves a person of faith, every person here whose heart is overflowing with belief, I pray that they would posture themselves, pace themselves, structure and order their lives in such a way where they can continue to show up in places like this, even though there's so many things competing with our time, even though there's so many things competing with our attention, even though there's so many things competing with our resources that they're going to recognize there's got to be room in their life to be the person that brings faith to the moment so Christ can do what he longs to do in the heart of even the person who's waiting to be raised from the dead. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Let's worship.